On a recent trip to Uganda, Pat Zukarin uncovered some of the most devastating atrocities committed against men, women, and children in modern times. He also had a chance to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and to teach Ugandan pastors how to defend their faith against mounting attacks on the claims of Christ. This is Evidence and Answers with Christian scholar, speaker, author, and apologist, Dr. Pat Zukarin. I'm Kevin Harris. Due to the graphic nature of some of what you'll hear today, listener discretion is advised, but you'll also hear the awesome hope and healing that God brings. And by the way, there is much material on this topic you can access at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Not only can you download today's program, but past programs dealing with everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. You'll find Dr. Zuckerman's articles, interviews with leading scholars, his latest book, The Apologetics of Jesus, and more resources that will educate and inspire you in your quest for truth. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Pat, as we begin today, give us some background on Uganda. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Yes, we just came back from a great mission trip in Uganda. Now, Uganda, for those of you who do not know, is located in Central Africa. It is a country slightly smaller than the state of Oregon. It is actually at the mouth of the Nile. I didn't know that. Surrounded by the countries of Congo to the west, Sudan to the north, Kenya to the east and Tanzania to the south, and it's a country whose population is about 31 million people. Uganda was once a British colony, gained its independence in 1962, and we all know this country from the rule of a man named Idi Amin, who ruled Uganda from 1971 to 1979. He became known as the Butcher of Uganda for his brutality during his eight years as president. Now, there are estimates that the number of his opponents who were either killed, tortured, or imprisoned vary from 100,000 to half a million. And Kevin driving around there and being shown the killing fields by the people there, many of them told me, here's where we found thousands of human skulls. Here's another location where we found thousands of skulls. Here's another mass grave that we found. I think the numbers are kind of low. It may be up in a million or maybe two million people who were slaughtered under his regime. Well, he was ousted in 1979 after which he fled into exile into Libya and then into Saudi Arabia where he died about six years ago. Now, Idi Amin had strong ties to the Palestinian Liberation Organization. In fact, he even sent some troops during the Six-Day War there in Israel and several of the other conflicts that took place later. And of the famous incident, Flight 139, Air France, the A300 Airbus was hijacked from Athens in 1976 and it was invited by Idi Amin to stop at Entebbe, the airport there in Uganda. And there the hijackers demanded the release of 53 PLO prisoners in return for the 256 hostages. And we know on July 3rd, 76, the Israeli paratroopers attacked the airport and freed almost all the hostages in one of the most famous and successful rescues in military history. Now, during his time as ruler, Idi Amin received much aid from Colonel Muammar Gaddafi of Libya and the Soviet Union. And after he was ousted, the country broke out into tribal wars. And under Milton Obote, who took over, at least another 100,000 lives were killed in the conflicts that took place afterwards. And today, the president is Lieutenant General Yoweri. Museveni, and he has rewritten the Constitution, eliminating term limits. So that's kind of what's going on in the country there. The life expectancy for males is 51 years old. For females, it's 53. 
And so they're still dealing with a lot of disease out there. The literacy rate's about 70% among the adults, and they have a big problem with AIDS. About 500,000 people there live with AIDS. Now, their religious background, about 40% are Catholic, 40% Protestant. They have a fast-growing Muslim population there, about 12%. Our mission trip there, Kevin, we divided into two teams. We had the women go and work with the orphanages in Gulu, while members of the probe team here went to do pastor's training in Jinja and in Fort Portal. Now, to tell us about what happened in the orphanages in Gulu, I brought a friend here who was on the team, Shanna. Shanna was on the team that went to Gulu to work with the orphanages up there. So, Shanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell us about uh, the orphanages and the work you did up there. What's the situation with the orphanages? Well, um, to begin with... In Gulu, they are being terrorized by a man named Joseph Coney, who is the leader of the LRA, or the Lord's Resistance Army, and he is basically slaughtering the Acholi people, which is the tribe that lives in Gulu. In order to combat the the slaughter of all these people, the government and their wise decision-making decided to move the people from the outskirts, where they were all farming on several acres of land. They decided to move them all into a refugee camp, just because it's easier to, in theory, defend a refugee camp where they're thousands of people living as opposed to all these different farmers and farming communities. Well, that seems nice in theory, but it has basically made uh, Joseph Coney's job a little easier because he still has terrorized and slaughtered many of the people that were in the refugee camps. The children that we worked with were children that actually may have been abducted by Joseph Coney. He's known for abducting child soldiers and making them serve in his army. We've even just recently heard that they've been injecting the children with AIDS so that they have no future. He tells them you're as good as dead anyway. You might as well work for me and let me help you take care of you. A lot of the children are forced to go back to their homes and kill their parents. Yeah, that's part of the brainwashing process he institutes to get these kids totally dependent upon him and in complete obedience to him. Absolutely. They can't go home after that. After you've killed your parents, you have nowhere to go. And that's one of the things that they're combating there is even if they have living relatives, these orphans are not welcome back. They are ostracized within their community because of some of the horrible things that they've done and and horrible things that have been done to them. We met a woman there, actually one of the orphanages that we worked with, it's called Village of Hope. And her first defense was to try and get children with a living relative, any living relative. She researched lineages and and tried to put them with someone. And sometimes that worked for the good of those children. Other times it ended up, for example, one of the kids that we met there, his name is Dennis. And the women in Uganda tie their babies onto their back with their shawl. And his parents lived in the refugee camp, but because there's so many people living in a small area, it's impossible to have enough food. So they would travel by day to farm their village and come back to the refugee camp at night where it was supposed to be safe. And um, his mother was shot on their way back from farming their small plot of land with him tied to her back. And um, by the grace of God, he got uh, untangled from her body and eventually made his way into a um, village where they hooked him up with the Village of Hope. Rose found a living great-grandfather, I believe, that that Dennis lived with. And instead of Dennis being taken care of, um, he ended up taking care of the grandfather. That's what we saw a lot of out there, Shanna, children taking care of their elderly grandparents or children taking care of other children having to raise their brothers and sisters because their families had been killed off in the war. Absolutely. In fact, we have um, what we call child-headed households where there were a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old caring for as many as five and six children. Some of them weren't even related. They just were taking care of um, children that had no one else. 
Yeah, Shanna, tell us about the conditions that you saw in these camps. I mean, some of these kids, the clothes that they were wearing was simply rags falling off of their bodies. Uh, some of them didn't have adequate clothing, the food situation as well. That is just like you said, their clothes were literally rotting off their bodies. I would say as many as half of the children that we saw had distended bellies from the malnutrition. Foraging for food, if we don't send food to them, they don't necessarily eat. A lot of the older children will work during the day in order to provide food and school fees for the younger brothers and sisters. A lot of them forego going to school themselves in order to put food on the table for other their families or school supplies as well. Well, one of the things that we saw is that brothers and sisters were forego meals for up to a week so that everyone in the family has at least a chance to eat a meal at least once that week. Absolutely. Rose, who is the founder of Village of Hope, would go in and if we didn't have all the kids, if they weren't all sponsored to where everyone got to eat, she would actually go into these refugee camps and say, we have enough to feed 20 kids. And the kids themselves would be the ones to decide who would eat. And they would say, you know, I ate Tuesday. Let's go ahead and feed this family. Or this child has been sick. Let's go ahead and feed them. And these children make the decision about where the food is going. Incredible. Shanna, tell us about some of the children that you met there and the stories that they had to tell. Some of them were just absolutely heartbreaking. One of the kids that I just fell in love with, his name was Richard, and he was funny and charming and taught him how to blow bubbles with bubble gum. Fell in love with this child, and then later to find out that um, he was abducted by the LRA, by Joseph Coney, and he was forced to kill his family. He killed both his mother and his father, and when he killed his mother, um, they pulled out her intestines, they wrapped them around his head, and made them wear it for five days to show the other children that that's what would happen. Many of the children that we met had killed other children because Joseph Coney would make the child soldiers kill any child that tried to escape as a way to show them what would happen if any of them tried to escape. Right, and then eventually he boiled their parents and forced the children to eat their parents as well. That's right. As a way to say, you're as much a part of their death as I am. And um, we also heard tales that he would tell the children that if they would eat the boiled flesh, that it would make them impervious to the sword. I know one of the girls living there, Stella, her parents were actually kind of resisting Coney and his movement. And the parents were slaughtered in front of her and her four brothers and sisters. And they boiled the parents and made the entire village partake of her parents to show them what happens to people that resist him. Man, you know, there's some people out there that can't imagine stuff like this goes on, Shanna. I mean, there may be some people out there saying, wait a minute, this is just over-exaggerated. You're, you're kind of blowing this up here. Are we, Shanna? No. In fact, it's atrocious. Pat, one of the IDP camps that we went to visit was in the middle of nowhere, and it had railroad tracks. And as we crossed into that refugee camp, Rose tells us that 80% of that population was slaughtered by Joseph Coney, and for nine miles, he laid the bodies side by side. He cut off heads and he cut off legs, and for nine miles, laid those bodies from side, to, uh, side by side on the railroad tracks all the way into town. And um, as much as I think that this can't be real, you know, open your newspaper. Just recently, December 26, hundreds of people were slaughtered going to church, men, women, elderly, infants. Yes, you know, uh, there's incredible evil that goes on in this world, but there's also a lot of good that goes on. And the Christians out there, though they're shorthanded, Shanna, they're doing a great work, aren't they? 
Yes. And, and Pat, I, in all honesty, the first day that we went to see the IDP camp, I was ready to go home. It was horrible. Children should not have to live in those kind of conditions. It was terrible. And I broke down and asked the Lord, how can you let this happen? And um, God is so good and just precious. And He just ministered to me to show me that there is incredible evil there, but there also is incredible good. And to see these children with their clothes rotting off their body, covered in flies, distended bellies, praising the Lord, singing about joy and hope and, and how the Lord is their strength. And the Lord also showed me that they get that God is their provider in a way that my children and I never will. I mean, they are not going to eat if the Lord does not provide them food. They understand in a way that we will never get that God is their rock and He is their provision and He is their joy because they have no other joy other than Him. Yeah, that is just something incredible for the things that they have seen and experienced and the conditions that they are under. Yet to hear them sing songs, things are getting better. When the Lord is on his throne, things are getting better. The Lord is my rock. That is just incredible. I mean, when uh, we experience a little bit of suffering or pain, suddenly we're wondering, where's God? Where's God in all this? Yet these young boys and girls experiencing what they did and being able just to praise God, that's just incredible, wasn't it? It absolutely was. And it stretched my faith. Yeah, Shanna, how has this experience uh, changed you? The Lord is just not letting me rest from Uganda. I um, Part of my heart has been left there. Um, I just am so touched that, that there are people willing to give them themselves so readily. And, um, you know, I have just been in prayer and petition and just wondering what the Lord wants from me right now with Uganda. I know that I will forever be changed because of that. I know that um, God is God, even if... Our, my physical eyes can't see it. And that's really what he asked me there when, when I was questioning um, how God could allow such atrocities and such evil. And, you know, he asked me, am I still God, even if you can't see me? And um, the other thing that I came away with is just the people of Africa and, and Uganda in particular are all about relationships and they don't have a time schedule, as we, Pat and I can both attest to, because they were late to everything. <laughs> and they, they call it keeping time is their way of, of telling you to be on time. They are all about relationships. They will stop whatever they need to do to talk to you or to visit with you and each other. And um, that's just very convicting because, you know, here in America, I have my schedule and my agenda and things that I have to get done. And I'm willing to do the Lord's work whenever I have a free moment. And that is not what he wants. And so that was very convicting as well. Yes, you know, your eyes are really open and you become a, quote, world Christian as you travel around the world and see how God is working in the lives of Christians, brothers and sisters throughout the world and your whole understanding of God and his grace and uh, the Christian life suddenly begins to change, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it kind of sparks you in that. I know one of the things that we saw in Fort Portal is the Muslim faith really making a push. They are coming in and trying to convert. And this this country is is war-torn, and they're, they're in a bad place. And the Muslims are coming in and swooping in. And, you know, I've never been one to feel like we're in a war, like to really feel like I've got to push back. And I, for the first time in my life, I realized that they aren't pulling any punches. They're coming in to take over paying for the kids to go to school, and that's the only way they're going to get education. It's It's uh, been very eye-opening that I realize there are other people jockeying for souls out there. Exactly. Pat, tell us about some of the training you did for the pastors there. You know, uh, part of our team, while Shanna was there in the orphanages, part of our team went to Jinja, which is at the mouth of the Nile. And there we were working 
with the Anglican Church. One of the bishops, Michael, there in the East District of Uganda, is an evangelical Christian. As you know, the Anglican Church is fighting with liberalism, and that's a big problem out there. And so he was desirous of training his leaders in Christian apologetics so they would know why they believe and be able to defend their faith against the growing liberalism going on over there. A lot of the priests there aren't saved. They don't know Christ. Why are they priests? Well, it's a good job. It's a secure job. It's going to give them income to feed their families. But they just go through the rituals and then they go home. And so a lot of the ministry is done by the lay people out there. And so we were brought in to train the lay people. So in a chapel that was about 200 years old, very rustic place, we were there doing training with these Christian leaders, training them in apologetics. And I remember opening with why we need apologetics. And that was really eye-opening to them because a lot of them have never been trained in it. A lot of them, this is how they do their evangelism. They say, I trusted Christ. Why don't you? And that's as far as it goes. They never understood why they need to give good reasons and evidence for their faith in Christ. And they're being challenged by the growing Muslim population out there. Idi Amin sought Colonel Gaddafi for help, and Libya has been pouring millions of dollars into mosques there in the country. In fact, when you go into Kampala, the capital city, you'll see a huge, huge golden mosque. And Gaddafi has spent millions to promote Islam there. And so they're facing that challenge, and they realize the need to be able to defend their faith. So we were there to spend one week training them in apologetics, the authority and inspiration of the Bible, the historical reliability of the Gospels, the uniqueness of Christ, the resurrection, the essentials of the faith, and they enjoyed it. They just swallowed it up. They uh, enjoyed the teaching that they had. And that's one thing to realize, that throughout the world, people want and need apologetics, being trained to know what you believe, but also why you believe and the reasons behind it. Then the next week, we went to Fort Portal, where we rejoined the team once again, and uh, Shanna and the women worked with the women leaders there in Fort Portal, and we worked with the pastors. Now, I remember driving into Fort Portal, and the first thing you see when you enter that city is the big, beautiful mosque, Islamic mosque, that was built by Qaddafi. Right there as you enter into that city, that's the first thing you see. That's the gateway to the city. And then when you look to the left, up on a mountain, it looks like a, a five-star hotel. But that's the palace that Qaddafi built for the boy king of that tribe out there. And what these Muslims are doing is going up to these pastors who are poverty-stricken and even their sons saying, if you'll join Islam, we'll give you money, we'll give you a house, we'll give you good pay. And to the boy king, you know, he promised them this great palace and he built from this palace. So uh, he's bought off uh, many of these leaders here in Fort Portal. So as you think about it, the pastors face tremendous uh, physical you know, odds as they seek to reach their country for Christ against incredible odds of the Muslims who are pouring millions into that city. Well, I remember seeing that mosque right there at the gate of the city, and a scripture came to my mind where Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I remember we went to the building where we were going to have the conference, and there were about 200 pastors there. It was just about 100 yards from the mosque. And each day we could hear the call to prayer from the mosque. And as we were training these pastors, I'm always looking outside the left window 
because that's where the mosque is. And obviously, the you know, people can know what we're doing in there because when the pastors would sing, they sang very loud and certainly they could hear what was going on. Well, one of the most powerful moments for me during the pastor's training came when we handed out to them their brand new Bibles. Many of them have these tattered Bibles, old Bibles wrapped in newspaper, and it was a thrill for them to receive their brand new Bibles. What a thrill it was to hand them their new Bibles. And then we didn't plan it this way, but it was on that day I taught on the authority and inspiration of the Bible there in Fort Portal. And when I was done, one of the pastors jumped up and he started shouting something. I didn't know what, it, what he was saying. I looked at my translator and my translator said, our brother is saying that for many years, the Muslims have challenged us on the Bible and we've never been able to answer their challenges. Our brother Pat today has given us reasons and answers to their challenges. And for the first time, I feel equipped and prepared to answer the challenges that they bring. Then another brother stood up and he was shouting excitedly. And he said, you know, for too long, we have just been simply beating around the bush. We haven't been able to answer the challenges that the Muslims bring upon us when they come with their crusades. Now, for the first time, I feel that we are prepared. And then a third man stood up and he said, we've got our brand new Bibles today. And from the teaching that we heard, I love God's word more than ever before. And they broke out into singing for about 20 minutes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will endure forever. And they sang that for about 20 minutes, holding their Bibles in the air. Some holding their brand new Bibles in their left hand and their tattered old Bibles in their right hand, singing heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will endure forever. It was just an absolutely powerful, powerful moment. And Shanna, share with us some of the experience you had with the women there at Fort Portal. Who can top that? Uh, The women, we also give out um, Bibles as well, and you could have just given them a brick of solid gold. It was such a, a gift for them. Especially um, a lot of the women have, um, there's only one Bible in their entire family. And as you know, we were working with a lot of women that were pastors, wives, or in some sort of authority there. But um, and, and they had to borrow a Bible to come because if their husband had the Bible or if someone in their, in their family had the Bible, they didn't have one. And so what a joy it was for them to get their Bible. And, and just it was just amazing. Also, I think the biggest impact that we saw was parenting. A lot of these women are raising their children by themselves. On the very first day, we had a woman named Regina that was in the back and she had a brand new baby that she carried everywhere she went and the baby was fussing and the girl that gave the um, parenting lesson, her name is Josephine Merkel, actually saw Regina raise her hand to strike the baby and she didn't. But after that, and all these children, we were sitting there in a room with a hundred women that all had 18-month-olds, three-year-olds, and all these children did was sit on their pallet and they would lay down and they would take naps and they would do nothing, nothing. They just sat there and Josephine went into how to interact with our children, how to teach our children about God, you know, how to, to play with them. It's something as simple as that. They didn't have the skills to do. And it was such a joy to see by the end of the week that parents were on the floor playing ball with them. And um, we brought them Play-Doh and, and let them play with their children. And just how that whole entire atmosphere had changed to even the point where the kids were kind of fussy when they weren't being paid attention to. There's no way that one of our three-year-olds would have sat through that lesson without being a distraction for hours, eight hours sitting on a pallet. And it was very neat to see the whole feeling of the room to change. Yeah, no matter what your background or talents may be, you know, God can use you in many ways in ministry, not only here in the U.S., but abroad as well. And I really enjoyed these pastors as they sat there with their one pen and their brand new little notepad here that they were so thrilled to get, taking notes 
on everything that we were saying as we were speaking for one to two hours as they sat there and diligently took notes. I remember on the last day, Don and I decided to spend the entire day on Islamic apologetics and how excited they were to learn how to share their faith with Muslims. All the while, I'm keeping my eye on the left window because the mosque is right outside our window there. So to think that we are teaching men and women about how to defend their faith in the shadow of the mosque right there that Qaddafi built was a powerful, powerful experience. Shanna, despite all that you saw and all the difficulties that you went through, would you go back again? Absolutely. I'm actually waiting for the Lord to tell my husband that we're supposed to be living in a hut in Uganda somewhere. So, um, yeah, (laughs) I would absolutely go back. Part of my heart is there now. What would you want to tell the people out there regarding what's going on in Uganda and Africa? I guess the thing I would most want to tell them is that you can make a difference. When the Lord started uh, directing me to go to Uganda, I kept telling him, you do know I'm white and I have two car seats in my back seat. And I don't, even when bad things come on the news, I change the channel. I am I'm not equipped to deal with this. And the Lord said, no, you're not, but I am. One of the websites where you can sponsor one of those children from the Village of Hope is uh, www.villagehopeuganda.com. And there are intermediate and immediate solutions. You can sponsor a child and that'll put food in their tummies. And there's also where the children make beads with scrap paper, where they roll these beautiful beads, they dip them in varnish and string them for necklaces. And you can buy that. And that helps to feed a child as well. Thank you, Shanna. This is Evidence and Answers Radio Show. And throughout the world, we are making a difference and an impact for the cause of Jesus Christ. Throughout the world, I hope that you learn from listening that people need and want the teaching that we bring, how to proclaim the gospel, how to defend the faith, and equip Christians to engage their culture for Christ. Just a reminder that you can download today's program at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Not only will you educate yourself, but by purchasing our resources, you'll keep Evidence and Answers on the air and expanding around the world as we present and defend the claims of Jesus Christ and His life-changing power. And parents and grandparents, you'll want to equip your children with the very interesting resources at evidenceandanswers.org, especially your young people who are in colleges and universities or who are planning to go. Send them strong and equipped with good information so that they may withstand the aggressive attack on their worldview. Thank you so much for your prayers and support for this vital ministry. That's evidenceandanswers.org. For Dr. Pat Zuckerman, I'm Kevin Harris. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers.